from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing an interview with Rhett Diesner. Although Rhett grew up in a Baha'i family, he didn't claim the Baha'i faith as his own until going to college. He first became a nurse and worked on a Native American reservation. Then he went back to school and got a degree in school psychology and then went back to the reservation to work in the school system for another three years, at which time he left to get his doctorate. He is the author of the book Psyche and Eros, Baha'i Studies in Spiritual Psychology. I started the interview by asking Rhett where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Yakima, Washington, which is in the central part of Washington State on the east side of the Cascades. So even though it's the evergreen state, it's the dry side. Sagebrush Desert, beautiful hills coming down off the Cascades. There's a small town of about 50,000 people. Fair amount of ethnic diversity. A lot of Latinos are in the area. And also uh, my town abutted the Yakima Indian Reservation. So what was growing up like at school and family life, that kind of thing? I always enjoyed school. I grew up at just a few blocks from my elementary school and about a mile from my junior high and another mile to my high school. I walked all of those till I got a car. I have uh, an older brother and an older sister and a younger brother. Mm-hmm. My parents loved animals, and so we always had lots of interesting animals around the house purebred cats and purebred dogs and different kinds of monkeys and marsets and guinea pigs and rabbits and gerbils and reptiles. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Was it you that was the animal lover in the family? Well, both my parents really liked animals. They were uh, both into raising purebred dogs and training them and taking them to shows although they were getting out of the showing thing by the time I was a little child. My brother and sister are a lot older than I am, so my parents kind of had two batches of children. I have a sister and a brother that are 14 and 11 years older than me, and then one brother that's a year younger. So my parents went through kind of two stages of their adult family life. Mm -hmm. But both my little brother and I, we loved animals, too. And my dad was a a bit of an outdoorsman, so we, we did a lot of camping and we're only about 50 miles from uh, Mount Rainier National Park in Yakima, so we got a lot of time in the Cascades and did a lot of tenting and trailering to uh, national parks and state parks. That was, uh, that was very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. In addition to animals, what other interests did you have growing up? I really liked school. Mm-hmm. I was a fairly serious student. I always loved reading and literature and 
spent a lot of my spare time in my youth reading. Mm-hmm. Played a lot of board games, a lot of board games and cards when I was a child. I was kind of the neighborhood organizer, so I would organize in the neighborhood to play sports after just after school pickup games and and games like army. <laughs> Get a lot of experience killing people with toy guns. <laughs> and my, my parents became Baha'is I was born, so I went to Baha'i children's classes weekly my entire childhood, and mm-hmm. my parents weaned away from Christianity slowly, celebrated Christmas every year when I was a child, mm-hmm. which, which I really enjoyed, but we also celebrated No Ruse. What's No Ruse? No Ruse is the uh, Baha'i New Year. Most Baha'is celebrate Yamaha, which is four days prior to the fast. But in those days, the Baha'is, at least in central Washington, didn't, didn't know that, so they would get presents at no ruse. <laughs> Maybe you could and, explain a little bit to our listeners what a Yamaha is, because it sounds like a motorcycle, and no ruse and the fast. Maybe you could give a little background on what these things are. The Baha'i faith has nine holy days, and one of those holy days is the first day of the year. And in the Baha'i calendar, the first day of the year is the vernal equinox, at least in the northern hemisphere. So Baha'is have a different calendar with a different start of the year? It's true. Baha'is do. Baha'i calendar is made up of 19 months with 19 days each. Baha'i religious service is held on the first day of each of those months rather than uh, weekly. 19 months times 19 days is 361, so that leaves four days left over, five days in leap year. And those four days are placed just before the last month of the Baha'i year, which would come at the uh, end of February and the beginning of March. The last month of the Baha'i year is the fasting time when adult Baha'is that are in good health fast from sunrise to sunset. And the four days before that fast are what calendar people call intercalary days. They're put into the calendar. Baha'is call it Yamaha which means the days of Ha, which symbolically mean days of God. Those four days are especially given over to giving to the poor and sharing presents with people. So that's what I was referring to earlier. Okay. Do you know how your parents became Baha'i? My father had been turned off to Christianity when he was young because some events had happened to his parents. They had been Lutherans, but some events occurred in their church that had perhaps annoyed them, so they became a bit alienated. My father grew up with a kind of a generic belief in God, but no religious practice. My mother, however, was raised very actively Christian science, and she really liked it, but she always had something in her heart that made her a seeker, so she was always looking, I think, perhaps for the fulfillment of Christianity. She's looked into many different religions and denominations of Christianity. She had a foster child, I think, in 1955, and the social worker for that foster child was a Baha'i, and she'd introduced my mother to the Baha'i concepts, and they really resonated with her. And So she told my father that they should both go look into that. How old was the foster child? This was the year before I was born, and the foster child was... I'm thinking probably eight, nine, ten. Hmm. Yeah, because he was the same age as my older brother, who was eleven years older than me. So 
I was, he was probably nine or ten years old. Yeah, my mother would have been pregnant with me at that time. Mm-hmm. So my parents went to Baha'i Firesides and studied Baha'i books. And no, no, what's a Baha'i Fireside? Uh, Baha'i Fireside is a meeting specifically organized to introduce people to the Baha'i faith because Baha'is have no clergy, just individual Baha'is will just hold them in their home and just invite anybody that is interested in learning a little more about the Baha'i faith. They generally tend to be introductory, but they also sometimes kind of serve the function of deepening. So if people have come to Firesides for a while, they might get into a little deeper uh, explanation of what Baha'i is. Now, what was it like growing up as a Baha'i in a Baha'i family? Of course, a, a child just believes whatever their t- parents tell them to believe, because the Baha'i faith is very moderate and non-fanatical and quite rational, that it probably appealed to me as a child. I think a child's heart yearns for some faith in something good, so a belief in world peace. It was very comfortable to me. I went to weekly Baha'i class when I was a child which, again, looking back, was a good experience for me because I, I grew up in a all-white neighborhood, but because Baha'is emphasize ethnic diversity and ethnic unity, Baha'is tend to come from a variety of backgrounds. So when I'd go to Baha'i children's classes, there would be African-American kids or Latino kids or Native American kids as, as well as white kids, and I think that was a really good experience for me to, to grow up thinking that that was normal. Also, you know, looking back, you know, a lot of religions emphasize what I think of as the downside to religion, the the devil or Satan or hell. Baha'is tend to emphasize the the goodness of God and heaven with very little emphasis on evil. I think it it causes you to grow up with a lot less fear and a greater feeling of kind of that God's a, a loving and comforting father. That was a real bounty for me. Now, what is the Baha'i principle or Baha'i teaching about good and evil? Well, the the main principle is that, that goodness means to be drawing nearer to God, and evil is anything that takes you away from God. We don't think that there's a force of evil. We don't think that there's a particular evil Satan that rules over a distant place called hell. We think of hell as really something created by the self, by not following God's path and not trying to be a good person and rejecting God. There are certainly people that tend to be evil that are, that are willing to also draw other people away from God, and sometimes Baha'u'llah refers to them as, as a Satan or an evil person. But generally it's a, a spiritual concept of the good is what moves us towards God, and the evil is that which is moving us away from God. What did you do after high school? After high school, I uh, went to a small liberal arts college in Walla Walla, Washington, called Whitman College. That was a really good experience for me. It was a a very nice college, very intellectual professors that happened to be fairly dedicated to teaching more than research. But also was a kind of a special time for me in getting to move away from my parents gave me a chance to really reflect on what I believed in life. And when I was a teenager, 16, 17, 18, I wasn't actively involved in the Baha'i faith. It seemed a little strict to me at the time. I mean, I'd grown up in the 60s and early 70s, and I didn't really want to have some religion telling me what to do and what not to do with fairly uh, 
what people would think of as traditional uh, moral principles. So I was a bit of a wayward youth, but getting out and living on my own and really having to think for myself, I really pondered, well, what did I really believe? That was a real soul-searching time for me and pretty painful because I had a hard time thinking of trying to understand how a person could really decide what was true. Especially growing up a Baha'i, you've been encouraged to believe that Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and even the traditional ways of Native people all have truth in them and all originated from God, even if humans corrupted them over time. It wasn't like I wasn't like searching for religion because for the way a Baha'i child is raised, the question really was, you know, does God exist and is religion in general true? That was something that I, I really struggled with uh, my freshman year. And I concluded that it was. <laughs> because of kind of my newfound faith in the way at least that I claimed it for my own, I decided that uh, I'd always wanted to be an academic. I thought, no, I should really learn a skill and get out in the world and help people. So after a year at Whitman College, I enrolled in a community college, took a two-year nursing degree and passed the state boards to be a registered nurse and then moved out to uh, the Yakima Reservation and worked in the emergency room in the hospital there for a couple of years. Then I decided I really did like school. <laughs> and so I returned to school many times after that and attended many different schools. <laughs> now, did you live on the reservation? I did. And what was that like? My neighborhood there was mostly uh, uh, Latino folks. That was good for me to, to get a little wider exposure to humanity. I got to be friends with Native Americans that lived there. Later, after more college, I, I got a degree in school psychology and came back again to the reservation and worked for the uh, Yakima Tribal Schools. There, all my bosses were Native Americans, and I worked completely with a clientele of uh, Native American students and had many wonderful experiences going to longhouses and participating in root feasts, and it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. What age group did you teach? I actually worked with, across the span of age, I worked with three Head Start sites in three different parts of the reservation. And I also worked with the private tribal junior high and the private tribal high school. So as a school psychologist, I would do counseling and assessments of students with learning problems. That's what I primarily did. Mm -hmm. Were you in touch with the Baha'i community there? I was, definitely. Both times that I was living there, I was actively involved in the Baha'i community and was elected to the uh, local spiritual assembly in Toppenish, Washington, which is uh, whenever a community has more than nine Baha'is, they hold an election for a governing body, and I was elected to that the years that I lived there. Mm -hmm. So there was this governing body of Baha'is right on the reservation? There was. In fact, there were three. There was uh, one in the town of Toppenish on the reservation, one in the town of Wapato on the Yakima Reservation, and then one outside city limits that was just called the Yakima Indian Nation uh, Assembly. How long were you at the reservation? I worked as a nurse. I was there for three years, and then I left for a few years. And then when I worked as a school psychologist on the reservation, I was there another three years. Mm-hmm. What were the circumstances that you left the reservation? The first time I left 
was because I decided that I didn't want to be a nurse anymore, that I wanted to continue my education. So I left to go to school, eventually uh, ending up with a master's degree in school psychology. And that's when I came back. When I was working for the tribal schools, I had an opportunity to teach evening class at the local college in developmental psychology. And I did that, and I absolutely loved doing that. I thought, wow, teaching is really my thing. So then I thought I should go get a doctorate because it's difficult to get a full-time academic job without the Ph.D. So I left the reservation to go pursue that. And where did you do that? I did that at Harvard mm-hmm. and uh, Cambridge, Mass. So you went all the way to the East Coast. I did. Mm-hmm. That was an exciting adventure. Uh, by that time, I was married and had children, and so I took an old Dodge station wagon and a U-Haul and took my family and our belongings all the way from Washington to Massachusetts. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was an adventure, too. <laughs> so you started a family while you were getting your Ph.D.? Actually, I got a really early start. I fell in love when I was 20 and got married by 21. My wife had been married before, so I had two stepchildren immediately, and then we produced one of our own within the first year. So I had actually had family with me through the ending my bachelor's degree and master's degree and doctoral degree. Yeah. And how long were you in Cambridge? I was in Cambridge three years. Mm-hmm. Growing up out here in the Wild West, I expected the East Coast just to be a slab of concrete, unfriendly people. So I was amazed driving through Massachusetts, all the beautiful forests, and found the people to be uh, quite friendly. Uh, Except when I had to ask them to repeat, local people spoke with an accent that I found difficult to decode. So I would often say, could you say that again? And that didn't make me popular with locals. (laughs) I lived in an apartment on the Charles and used to go out jogging. This would have been 1985 to 1988, so I'd go out jogging several times a week along the Charles, and really that was very pleasant. I loved Harvard. Education was great. I had some really wonderful professors that really taught me a lot, not just academic knowledge, but I really learned ways of being a better person. I really got a good education. What happened after you got your Ph.D.? Well, I had promised my wife we would move back to the Northwest. So since I was getting close to closure, I started looking for jobs out here. I had a few interviews, but the first place that offered me a job was Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho, and I took it. Mm-hmm. And I uh, have been there ever since. That's just almost 20 years. And what do you teach there? I teach a variety of psychology courses. I teach Introduction to Psychology. I teach Developmental Psychology, which is required by several programs, but especially by people that want to be teachers, so I get a lot of education majors in my classes. I teach Educational Psychology every semester, which is also populated mainly by education majors. And then I I teach an advanced uh, course for psychology majors every spring, sometimes advanced developmental psych, sometimes adult development, sometimes introduction to positive psychology. When I was thinking about Ph.D. programs so that I I could return full-time to a university and go tenure track, I, I really spent time meditating and thinking, now, what would be an important thing for a Baha'i psychologist to study? And I 
I really read the Baha'i writings and prayed and meditated and tried to think what would be really important. And my conclusion was is that it would be really good for a Baha'i psychologist to study moral development. So I looked through the literature to see, you know, what was the most interesting work being done in moral development, and I concluded it was Lawrence Kohlberg's work, and he was a professor at Harvard, and so I applied to that program Mm -hmm. and got in. So moral development in particular was what I focused on, both for my classes and as well as for my uh, dissertation. And so I infuse that into my classes on psychology, deal with issues of moral development one way or another, and then I also try to design the methodologies of my teaching so that it encourages the development of human virtues and help my students to become better moral reasoners, trying to give them the cognitive skills to struggle with important moral questions that they encounter in their life. Of course, I I aim not to indoctrinate, but to uh, help provide those kinds of tools for people to solve their moral issues themselves. One of the things that's very fulfilling and sustaining to me is psychological research. And I've done the same thing with that over the last 15 years that I did when I was thinking about what kind of doctoral program. I try to think about the Baha'i writings and meditate and reflect and think what direction would God like me to go in terms of research. And uh, 1990s, I came to the conclusion that really what was important for me to study would be materialism. It seemed to me that materialism in a lot of ways was the antithesis of spiritual development. I did a fair amount of research developing scales and interview techniques and using other people's measures, doing some developmental research on stages of people's grappling with materialism. The results of that got published in a journal and in uh, chapters in a couple books. Now, that's that's an interesting subject. I'm curious to know if you can elaborate a little bit or summarize a little bit on what about materialism you were studying or interviewing people about. And I'll also put a little plug in for a book. I had a a book published this year from George Ronald Press in uh, Oxford, England. Uh, It is available on Amazon, though, and the uh, name of the book is Psyche and Eros, basically a a collection of papers about psychology that are inspired from a Baha'i viewpoint. And in that book, there is a a chapter on materialism that summarizes my understandings and study, but specifically from a Baha'i point of view. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit then on this issue of materialism and what you've found as far as its effect on society. Well, there had been some research done, of course, before I got interested in it, and there continues to be research done on it now in this this last decade, and I, I haven't been working on it this decade, and if we have time, I'll mention what I have been working on. But research on materialism has been fairly damning it shows that the more materialistic a person is, the less happy they are. By materialistic here, I don't mean philosophically. I mean what I would call crass materialism, which means focusing one's life on acquiring material goods and prioritizing material things over one's human relationships. People that have a tendency to do that, and of course, this culture really encourages people to do that through the media, through advertising, basically through a consumer society. We have a lot of social pressure to get focused on collecting and upgrading our our material things, and often at the expense 
of both the amount of time and quality of time that we spend with other humans. So, like I said, the higher one scores on tests of materialism, the less happy a person is, the less fulfilled they feel, the less grateful they are. It works against the, the trait of gratefulness is diminished by the trait of being materialistic. It works against a sense of hope. The more materialistic we are, the less hope that we tend to have in our lives. And, of course, clearly materialism works against uh, spirituality. Uh, the more materialistic we are, the less spiritual we tend to become. So it really uh, correlates with a lot of problems. On the macro scale, there's evidence that you know, materialism is a factor that's involved in wars. It's a factor that encourages racism. It's a factor that encourages nationalism. So it tends to be a very uh, a dangerous path to go down. In the case of racism, how does materialism factor into racism? Well, it's a second-order factor. One factor is what you might call the, the scapegoat factor. When people find a downturn in their material situation, so let's say there's closure of a factory or taxes increase or a person loses their job, people always want to look for a scapegoat. Whose fault is this? And the more materialistic you are, the more likely that you will look to a minority group to blame. You'll say, well, we lost these jobs because these other people will work for less money. And then you, you build up a prejudice against the ethnic group that you think is involved in there. Mm -hmm. That's a major factor. Now, what are the Baha'i principles when it comes to this subject of materialism? Now, Baha'u'llah, the uh, prophet founder of Baha'i faith, really emphasizes that materialism is a very dangerous uh, focus for human beings, that the material things of the world can very easily distract us away from God and distract us away from developing our spiritual virtues. The focus on material things, again, one can see in Baha'i writings uh, hints that materialism also can lead to nationalism and and to war, to encouraging a, a lack of peace and a violence towards others. Mm. There's various pointers in the Baha'i writings that point in those directions in terms of materialism. Mm -hmm. Are Baha'is asked to live an aesthetic life because of the issue of materialism? That's a very good point you bring up. Baha'u'llah emphasizes moderation in all things, and that includes our approach to the material world. Materialism with an ism, Baha'is always consider an evil, but material things themselves are not evil. The material things themselves, right, our beautiful world was created by God, and all the gifts that have been placed here and all the resources here are, are something for humans to shepherd and to enjoy and to use in a moderate way. And in fact, Baha'u'llah has emphasized to his followers that he wants them to live a comfortable life. He discourages a luxurious life, and he encourages all Baha'is to help lift everyone out of poverty. So Baha'is are not seeking to live an impoverished life, and we don't believe in an ascetic life either. We're, our goal is, is not to cause human suffering either for ourselves or for others. And in fact, as I said, encourages moderation in the middle path. The middle path is actually much more challenging than either the extremes of deficit or excess. It's, it's very easy to 
to renounce all of your material things and go hide out in a hermitage. It makes life in a way very simple and easy, but then Baha'u'llah says once we do that, then we've removed ourselves from being able to be of service to others. And, of course, a life of luxury, we already have discussed some of the problems with that. Mm-hmm. So Baha'u'llah even says that it's okay for a Baha'i to be wealthy as long as he never lets his wealth become in between himself and God. So he always encourages wealthy people to be the caretakers of the poor and to be very generous. Mm-hmm. So there's no conflict from a Baha'i point of view of being enjoying the material world, in mm-hmm. fact. We should be uh, grateful when we have food and grateful that we have a home to live in if we do. Now, you made an interesting statement. You said that it was more difficult to live this middle road between the extremes of wealth or living an ascetic life. What are those challenges? To be able to live a comfortable life and to have material objects around you but without getting attached to them. Material things are always a temptation to us. We are drawn to them, and it's very easy to move from having material things to becoming materialistic and having something that we then put above our human relationships. I can remember an example of this when, when my little boy was a toddler. I had a, an antique vase that I liked very much. It was a very beautiful vase and was rare and it was valuable and my son was just a toddler and was going to knock it over, and I yelled and screamed at him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my Baha'i friend that was with me said, well, he said, now two things are broken. The vase is broken and your child's heart is broken because you yelled at him. Mm-hmm. That really humbled me, and I never mm-hmm. forgot that because, of course, in theory, I would hope that my son's heart was much more valuable to me than some piece of ceramic. Living that moderate life, having the material things around us, but to be detached from them and never let them intervene between us and being a a spiritual and generous and loving person is much more challenging, like I said, than if if I just renounced everything and emptied my house out. Well, it's not much challenge. (laughs) You're You're not challenging yourself to grow. So this was the work that you did in the 90s. What's the work you're doing today? Well, around the late 90s, I continually study the Baha'i writings on a, a daily basis, and I began to notice a pattern that Baha'u'llah mentioned beauty many, many times. And after I noticed that, I actually got into a Baha'i database and just put in various permutations on the word beauty and noticed that it, it showed up almost a thousand times. And I thought, well, there must be something important here. So I started looking at it further and then began investigating it psychologically. There's been very little research done on beauty, so I decided that would be a good place for me to focus. One of my first studies was on the idea that if if a person's heart was recognizing beauty, I I use the term engaged, when, when you're engaged by beauty, your sense of hope increases. And I was very concerned with that because you can see this in elementary school students, even first graders and second graders. If school isn't a good experience for them, they begin to lose hope fairly early. And I'd heard a lecture from Professor Michael Penn, who is a Baha'i that teaches at a college in Pennsylvania. And he was mentioning how in the inner city, African-American children often get turned off to school by second grade and lose hope that the system is going to have anything that would really benefit their lives. 
and it just started reminding me of other situations I'd been in where I'd seen children lose hope. So I, this has been in the back of my mind for a while. So I was thinking, well, how can we arrange an environment that encourages a sense of hope in children? One of the hypotheses I had was that a life in which we're engaged by beauty really brings up one's level of hope. So I, I designed a, an experiment with several classes of college students and with a comparison group and pre- and post-tests in which I tested people on their levels of hope at the beginning and end of the class and then put them through weekly experiences in which we had discussions about natural beauty and discussions about human-made beauty, which generally we call art but can extend a little beyond art into the whole variety of human crafts in which people make anything. And then another important idea, which is the idea of moral beauty. You know, we all have that idea. We often say, oh, you know, uh, he's such a beautiful person or she's such a beautiful person. And we don't really, we don't mean the way they look. We mean their virtues and attributes. So I introduced these ideas into one of my classes and then we would discuss examples from the students' lives of those three kinds of beauty. And then when all the test results were in, it showed that the students that in my class that weekly explored beauty, their level of hope went up considerably, statistically significantly, compared to comparison group classes on the same topic, but that didn't deal with beauty on a weekly basis. Hmm. That was a bit encouraging to me. Is that study published somewhere? It is. It was uh, published in 2006 in the Journal of Moral Education. Speaking of moral education, are you familiar with the Virtues Project? The one by the Pop-Offs? Yeah. I am. Do you have any relationship with that, or have you used it? Well, I have gone to a couple of workshops that they've presented. Mm -hmm. I really admire the program. I think it is a very good program. In fact, I think their approach was similar to mine in the sense I think that they looked at the Baha'i writings and thought, okay, what is it that people really need and what's very important in terms of education? And human virtues is something that's highly lauded by Baha'u'llah. And in fact, Baha'u'llah says that the, the human virtues are also the attributes of God. So things like being honest and being authentic and being generous and being loving and being trustworthy, these human virtues are also the the attributes that we attribute to our Creator. So it seems like a very worthy area to work on. I haven't seen research data showing that their program works, Mm -hmm. but I would be amazed if it didn't. And there's certainly been many school districts around the world that have used their program and and anecdotally report a lot of success with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I admire it. And I've I've used some of her materials in my uh, educational psychology class, in fact. Mm -hmm. Are you going into other research endeavors? Well, I'm still working with beauty research. done some more research since that initial study that I mentioned, showing a variety of interesting things. Again, being engaged with beauty correlates very strongly negatively with materialism. In other words, people that notice the beauty around them, whether it's human beauty or natural beauty or artistic beauty, they tend to be considerably less materialistic than others. They tend to be uh, higher on the gratefulness trait. They tend to be more thankful in their lives. Other research that other psychologists have done in the last couple of years also show that or hint towards the fact that being engaged by beauty is also something that's very effective for overcoming depression. 
I plan to do a, an experimental study next year on that. This year, I've been looking at the relationship between justice and beauty. And in fact, I've just collected data this fall from about 150 people on their levels of justice, their level of their ability to reason with justice, and also their level of engagement with beauty. And there is a correlation of about 0.24, which is significant. It's not huge, but it's significant. What relationship are you finding between justice and beauty? Well, it appears that the more engaged a person is with beauty, the more likely they are to be a more powerful reasoner about justice, and vice versa. They're correlated. If a person is concerned with justice in their lives and tend to focus their reasoning powers on determining what is right and what is fair, they have a tendency also to be more engaged by beauty. It's not a huge effect. It's a small effect, but it's statistically significant effect. Now, why did you pick justice? There's two reasons that it caught my attention. One is that Baha'u'llah said that justice is the most beloved thing in his sight. And then also a, a Harvard esthetician has published a book called On Beauty and Being Just. And her thesis was that beauty and justice are highly correlated. But she didn't have any empirical evidence. She just used her reasoning to explain how they're related. So I thought, well, it would be interesting to actually collect data and see, are these two related or not? Mm-hmm. As I said, I'm finding out that they are related, not in a strong or powerful way, but in a significant way. Mm-hmm. In the Baha'i writings, is there not a relationship between justice and unity? Well, there is. And in fact, it's I think somewhat reversed from what people often think. Often people think we really need to... Uh, achieve social justice in the world before the world will be able to unify. In other words, we we need to find out how we need a a fair distribution of opportunities and goods, and after that fairness occurs, then we will be able to have national unity, nations get along, and ethnic unity with races getting along. But actually, Baha'u'llah said the relationship is the reverse. He says that not until we establish unity among people will we be able to establish justice. And so that's a pretty provocative thesis. And in order to do that, what are the Baha'i teachings as far as being able to come toward unity if justice is not the precursor to achieving unity? Baha'u'llah has emphasized both micro and macro approaches. I mean, the micro approach is within our own personal life. In our own personal life, we have to strive to be free of racial prejudice and gender prejudice and nationalism. And the way to do that is to uh, you know, call ourselves to account, to be sure that we never do prejudicial or racist acts, to make amends if we do, and to you know, seek out friendships from a wide variety of people that come from a you know, diverse backgrounds. On the macro level, Baha'is aim to help uh, introduce the world to the Baha'i belief system so that people all around the world can recognize that Baha'u'llah has teachings that can unite the planet. And also on the macro level, the Baha'is work a lot with uh, the United Nations and other like-minded groups that aim to break down racial barriers and nationalistic barriers and strive to do service to others that are from backgrounds different than their own. 
Do you see areas of research in the future that you would like to pursue down the road? There's some things about engagement with beauty that are still holding my attention. For one thing, nobody has ever studied the developmental pathway of that. In other words, studying small children, middle school children, teenagers, adults, midlife adults, elderly adults, and look for what is the developmental pathway for understanding beauty. And that's some research that I'm going to start this spring, and that will probably take me a couple of years really to finish that. So that's a fairly big mm. <laughs> agenda. Mm-hmm. Having given some thought also to uh, action research, in which rather than the researcher researching their own interest, looking for a service agency that needs research help. And in fact, I've contacted, I think it's our regional area agency on aging. I think I'll be collaborating with them on some research projects that serve the elderly. And so rather than driving my own agenda, so to speak, Mm -hmm. I'll work more as a, a consultant to design research that that meets the needs of the people that are actually involved with the study. And what kind of research would that be? Do you have any idea? The uh, agency director, which I've approached, one concern they have is that the elderly have a fairly high rate of suicide, and the part of Idaho that I live in is even higher rate of suicide even than the national average. So they're interested in, in trying to study some of the causes and correlates of that and what can be done to help ameliorate it. So that's one study we might do locally. Mm-hmm. What direction do you think you might have gone in if you had not gone through that soul-searching that you had in college after you had left home? Well, that's an interesting one to say. When I first went to that liberal arts school, I was pre-med, and I'd hoped to become a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So my life could have taken a different route. Psychiatrists, although many of them are very nice human beings, They have a very low rate of religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs, and in fact, the majority of psychiatrists don't believe in God. So it would have been interesting to Mm -hmm. me to wonder if I'd have gone down that path, what kind of challenge that would have been for me. On the other hand, I don't know if it's genetic or maybe just the way I was raised, but I have a pretty strong sense of social justice, and I I think I might have become actually an environmental activist, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and maybe not such a peaceful one. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you think that? I mean, of course, it's hard to predict over a lifetime, but sure. you know, when you're young, you look for adventure and you want mm. fast change, and mm. I've always been very concerned with environmental issues, and really, I think probably in the kind of the Native American motif, you know, the earth is our mother, and mm-hmm. that's not a metaphor, right? I mean, it's it's literal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> earth is our mother. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel a, a real strong sense to defend her and for humans to learn to live in harmony and not to rape her. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when I was young, I might have, I mean, I'm not a violent person at all. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that, but I think I would have been willing to be a little more adventurous in actively trying to make rapid change. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So how is being a Baha'i temper that? Well, for one thing, violence is forbidden from Baha'is. Baha'is can, of course, defend themselves under some circumstances, Mm -hmm. but in general we're discouraged from owning arms. There's nothing fanatical about it. I mean, Baha'is that need to hunt for their living certainly can have guns, and people that do target practice for their sport, it's 
as I said, it's not fanatical, but mm-hmm. we're discouraged from owning weapons of violence, and we're very discouraged from violence. And in fact, Baha'u'llah says it's better to be killed than to kill someone. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, Baha'is really strive hard to be peacemakers, mm-hmm. even though on the macro level, Baha'is are not pure pacifists. And Baha'u'llah said if one nation arises up and violates the rights of another nation, that all nations should arise together to stop that nation's aggression. So that does leave room for interpretation. doesn't mm-hmm. exactly say be violent. Mm-hmm. Baha'is are definitely not pure pacifists, even though we're strongly peace-oriented and, and definitely against violence. Mm-hmm. The other thing I detected in, in what you were saying was that there's this level of impatience of change happening right away, if he had not had a Baha'i attitude or Baha'i point of view. Did I read that right? Yeah, you did read that right. I still struggle with patience, but I'm definitely better than I was as a youth. And, you know, that tends to be the nature of youth. You know, they look at the previous generation, they see all the sins of their fathers and grandfathers, and they want to make it right. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good impulse and a a good impetus. Mm -hmm. But sometimes in our desire to do things rapidly, we are willing to transgress our own moral principles. We often are more willing under some circumstances to perform violence, thinking that perhaps the means isn't good, but the end would be good. Mm-hmm. Whereas Baha'u'llah emphasized that many things happen gradually, that humans evolve and develop gradually, and that peace will come perhaps gradually, that the development of religions over time has been gradual. The development of the individual human is gradual over many years. And so there's some implied teaching there that patience is important, that a person has to set themselves in the right direction, but not to become impatient with results that eventually when a person's heart is good and they strive to do right, results will be made. So before we conclude, was there anything else you'd like to say or share? I've enjoyed this nice narcissistic moment of talking about myself, Warren. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that makes me a little nervous. <laughs> I'm supposed to enjoy that. <laughs> I totally can relate. <laughs> but aside from that, is there anything you would like to share? <laughs> well, in this special time of year when our Christian brothers and sisters are celebrating Christmas. I certainly like to remember the concept of peace on earth and goodwill towards all women and men. Certainly all of us humans, all six or seven billion of us on this planet are all in that together. I feel very fortunate and grateful that God's let me live in such a wonderful age in which I can be one tiny small piece of those seven billion people trying to strive to make our planet a better place for our children and grandchildren. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Yeah, I look forward to meeting you in real time sometime, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rhett Diesner, a psychologist and author of the book Psyche and Eros, Baha'i Studies in Spiritual Psychology. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Justice is allowing fairness to guide your actions and decisions. Justice is someone being judged individually, not based on the capacity of another, which also means that people receive what they need to survive or accomplish a goal. Justice is being open to ideas that are best for a given situation. First and foremost, truthfulness is being able to be honest to oneself and only then is one able to proceed with extracting honesty and truthfulness from others. Patience. First thing I think of when I think of patience is my son Adam. He's developmentally delayed and even the smallest thing takes so much time to accomplish. Every day is a test for me to remember, stop, take a deep breath, be patient because when I'm not patient, the frustration is overwhelming. And when I'm patient, I can enjoy the journey without worrying so much about the destination. Kindness to me is an important aspect in my life. Kindness means being respectful, making someone feel better when they're down, and allowing someone to take your place. Being kind to others makes me feel better about myself. Myself to thee. 
God, refresh and gladden my spirit, purify my heart, illumine my Service to me is any activity that is performed in the spirit of benefiting others uh, for their common good. And this is to me like worshiping God, which is our purpose. Forgiveness is about opening your heart and acknowledging that we are all human and sometimes make mistakes. Forgiving gives us an opportunity to cleanse our spirits because in the process, we let go of resentment, anger, and hostility, all ungodly sentiments. By forgiving, we replace these emotions with love, tolerance, and acceptance. Sometimes we forget that while it is important to forgive others, forgiving ourselves for our errors and shortcomings is just as important. I know that's where I have trouble. When I truly forgive myself for a mistake I made, it allows me to heal, to grow, and become my true spiritual self. Humility is like the opposite of conceit. Humility, to me, is a virtue not easily practiced by many because it involves putting others ahead of you. You know, not always thinking about what makes you stand out in front of others, but that you are just a part of a larger plan. You are playing a role in this age of mankind. Everyone knows what it's like to be a teenager. It's a time when anything that anybody says to you or about you will stay in your brain forever and make you overanalyze yourself for hours on end, especially if it's something the least bit critical, which is why tactfulness is so important. It's okay if you don't like something, and it's okay if you want to voice that, but do so with tact and save us a couple hours of overanalyzation.
Responsibility. This is something I have forever struggled with. Whether it be doing my chores as a child, following through with my commitments, paying bills on time, or even just making simple choices. But the more I've strived and learned to act responsibly, the more trustworthy I've become, the more dependable I've become, and most importantly, the more aligned with God I feel. Tolerance is a good place for me to start. If I can be tolerant of a situation first, then I get to follow it through with other virtues like love and patience and kindness um, that support my act of being tolerant. Well, courage to me is a way to get through fears and troubles. When I'm scared, I always tell my parents how I feel with confidence and bravery. They help me work out my problems. After that, I feel more courageous. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.